This is A View from the Bunker. Now, here's Derek Gilbert. Serpents in the Bible, or are they dragons? That's this week. Iron and Myth, straight ahead on A View from the Bunker. Imagine a wave of terror attacks across our country. Unexpected, shocking, deadly, and provoked by a single email. The government responds with lockdowns and lockups of anyone with unapproved ideas, and uh, they add in mandatory vaccines. That's the premise behind my novel, The God Conspiracy, and your response to our special offer in the month of August was so overwhelming, and, and we are grateful for that, that we've decided to extend it. The God Conspiracy plus the theology behind the novel, 12 hours of our video teachings taken from presentations we've recorded over the last five years, 12 hours of video in all on four DVDs, all together, a $120 value. We're offering it to you during the month of September for just $35 plus shipping and handling. It's a compelling story that I hope you appreciate, but more than that, the video teachings on the long supernatural war in which we all play a part from Eden to Armageddon. Take advantage of it now. Available online at the Gilbert House store only, gilberthouse.org. And we thank you for your prayers and your support. Dragons are make-believe, or at least that's what we've been taught. And yet the word for dragon shows up in the Bible a lot more often, dozens of times throughout uh, Scripture. So God is calling them dragons. Why are we so reluctant to use that term? Where does it come from? Why the ancient world's fascination with serpents and dragons? And are some members of the spirit realm, God's throne guardians, serpentine in appearance? That's this week's discussion. Joining me for our monthly Iron and Myth session, pastor and author of this, the, the books Giants, Sons of the Gods, Conspiracy Theory, and The Angel of the Lord, a biblical, historical, and theological study, among others, pastor of the Reformed Baptist Church of Northern Colorado in Boulder, Colorado, Pastor Doug Van Dorn, and best-selling author, award-winning screenwriter, uh, author of the series that we recommend, uh, Chronicles of the Nephilim, Chronicles of the Watchers, Chronicles of the Apocalypse, nonfiction books on, based on the theology behind the fiction series, and uh, the writer of a new film that is going to debut September 7th. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, My Son Hunter. Uh, <laughs> it's going to get him in trouble. Uh, Brian Godawa. Uh, gentlemen, we're down a man tonight as uh, Judd Burton is under the weather, but uh, thank you for making time on your schedule to join us. First off, fellas, before we jump into the topic tonight, uh, just a, you know, a word of prayer. Uh, we, we did this prior to recording for our brother, uh, Judd Burton. He's a little under the weather tonight, so we'll be missing his insight and his expertise. But, uh, uh, Brian, you're about to become the center of the, uh, the maelstrom here very soon. September 7th, the movie My Son Hunter, which you wrote, will be uh, released. As of uh, just a few minutes ago, when I looked at the trailer again, it's been viewed 2.7 million times. Whoa, dude, seriously. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Actually, this is very relevant to our topic tonight, the serpent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh yeah, I'm excited about it and um it's it's it, it's getting around, uh, it's causing some controversy because and one of the reasons why is when you, when you watch the trailer, it's it's really done well. You can see, oh, this is a quality movie. This isn't the typical you know, conservative uh uh cheap uh, you know, rip-off type things. This is this is a very unique edge to it. Uh, you can see it even in, in the trailer. It, we've got this satirical, comedic edge, but there's also facts 
and and it's done well. And um, so I'm excited about it. And yeah, it opens September 7th. Uh, people can pre-order it at mysonhunter.com. There's no theatrical release, of course, because no no distributor in Hollywood would take uh, 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 that movie, right? Yeah. Um, and then we <laughs> ended up getting Breitbart.com to be the distributor. So, but I, as I understand, you can go pre-order the DVD or online. I believe uh, you can obviously you know watch it online when it comes out September 7th. But you can go to mysonhunter.com to get that information. And um, there was one thing I wanted to say about that. Um, I got to say, it's it's really awesome that Lawrence Fox is playing that role because he's an actor that I've liked for a long time, going back to his role in, uh, oh gosh, one of the police procedurals from the UK. But uh, he's oh wow, he, yeah. So he's he's always been a really yeah really good actor. And what was what was the film or the the series that he was in? Um, well, he was in Victoria. He played uh, Lord Palmerston, yeah, who was kind of like the Donald Trump of uh, 19, 18th century uh, England, you know? So he's kind of interesting. Um, uh, yeah, he's a great actor. And truthfully, he he plays Hunter Biden and John James, who is famous for being Jeff Colby on the Dynasty, um, he plays Joe Biden, and they are phenomenal. And um, yeah, it's but it's a hard thing to do because, you know, when you think about this, you're about to make this movie that nobody in Hollywood would touch. So you got to get actors who have the guts, the courage mm. to to stand up. Now it was a great script, it, it, you know, and and they people loved it, but you know, doing this will probably lose your career. So these guys already didn't care and they've already stepped out and stood up and spoken up. So they were fine, but it's hard so imagine, you know, like when you watch some Hollywood movie where they do a polit, you know, like um, the movie on Sarah Palin or the movie against Trump, uh, James, Col the Comey rules, all that kind of garbage. Well, they, you know, they got the pick of the litter and they've got the best actors in Hollywood willing to play these roles and look just like them. So in some ways, I think it was a blessing that we were able to find such great actors to fit. You know, you're not going to fit perfectly the look. The goal is not to look exactly like them. The goal is to it's not even to reproduce all their little nuances. You try to do that, but it's to try to capture the spirit of a character and to make you be drawn in. Because John James, like um, Lawrence Fox, looks a lot like Hunter, but John James is a little bit huskier obviously than mm. than the thin biden you know he he kind of has a little bit of look but being huskier and he's got a huskier voice that was my big concern it's like you know he doesn't have that weaker voice that biden has but you know what you when you watch him you get absorbed you get pulled in and 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 you believe it you believe it that he's biden for this story and he doesn't have to you know sound exactly like him to in order to recreate a a character uh with all his flaws as well as um his strengths mm -hmm. inspector lewis was the not to derail a conversation right there after some great commentary but inspector lewis it was driving me nuts and i had to look it up that was the show oh. we used to watch over here um and the frankenstein chronicles with sean bean so you know against lauren fox has oh. done some really really interesting things um but yeah, he's uh, he's fantastic. In fact, it, he's the he is the best in this movie of all the actors on there. You know, he is the best in terms of he captured the character that I wrote just phenomenally. Mm. He, you know, what I mean by that is it's not just uh, you know the emotional display, etc. The other element of this it's a satire. And and by the way, since our audience is you know predominantly going to be Christians, beware. It's rated R. There's language, sexuality, and a lot of drugs, a lot of language. Um, there's no nudity, but there is all that stuff. But I always tell Christians, 
look, it's not for everyone. And if, you know, if you can't, if that's too much for you, fine. But if you can handle reading Ezekiel chapter 16 and Ezekiel (laughs) chapter 23, where God describes, you know, Samaria and, uh, 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 you know, Israel, um, Israel and Judah, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, As this twin sisters being gang raped and having sex with everybody on the street, you know, that kind of a thing. If you can handle that, you understand that, the vulgarity, if it's properly used prophetically, it it is the most potent image for communicating uh, corruption, literally. I mean, that's and then of course that's what we're talking about is corruption, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a satire, and so the the what what's so good about um, um, the hunter character is um, what's his name again? <laughs> Lawrence Fox. Uh, Lawrence, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Lawrence Fox is so brilliant because he captures the seriousness, the pathos of that character, but he has comedic timing that's perfect because I wrote a lot of subtle, a lot of subtle um, sort of satire in there, right? And he picked it up and he just nails it perfectly. So he's got that that wide breadth of pathos to comedy, and uh, I yeah I think people are going to really love it. But yeah, beware! It is it is vulgar, but it is vulgar in a prophetic sense. So uh, it's it, yeah, it, its ultimate goal is is truth. Well, that's one of the reasons that uh, you know Sharon and I, when we've recommended programs for Christians who want to understand where we're going prophetically, shows like Altered Carbon, you know, which I think really illustrates the depravity of the transhumanist movement or Westworld, for that matter. What will humans be like when we think there are no consequences to our actions? That's what Amen. you get, but you can't. You wouldn't want to sit children down in front of that and watch them because of the violence and the and the uh, the sex, which is. Um, uh, gratuitous in the sense of the the people. If if these were real people, uh, they yeah. they were just living lives that have no real purpose or meaning because they think there is no real purpose or meaning and no consequences. So why not do anything and everything? Because yeah. otherwise, you know, you live forever and you run out of things. You get bored. Um, but and you know, there's something else too about this dealing with. And again, there's there's limits, and you can't. You know, you don't want to be pornographic and all that. So right. it, it, it's a gray area. But the idea is you have to accurately depict the sin or the depravity, or your message of redemption will have no power. Because um, and, and showing the the self destruction, what where that leads to, that's the the violence and the the um, destruction of human beings and people. But that's the kind of thing that these kind of stories have the power to really communicate. And um, yeah, we, we have to keep that in mind when we're watching this, because if you don't accurately depict that destruction uh, or its consequences, then your message of redemption is, won't, won't be believable to people. Yeah. Save from what? Save from <laughs> having a good time is what, uh, yeah. sadly, what most people TV, think. Ni- 1970s TV villain, you know, like, nah, yeah. it's yeah. got to be a real villain. Yeah. <laughs> well, the villain in the story of the Bible is clearly the uh, the dragon. Uh, the only place in uh, the New Testament where that word in Greek, uh, drakon, is, is even used is in the book of Revelation, where it refers to uh, Satan, the big red dragon. But uh, in the Hebrew Old Testament, there are a number of words that can be translated as dragon. They're usually not um, often translated as serpent, sometimes as jackal. But um, the, the question I had, and this is something Sharon and I kind of dealt with a bit in, in our book, giants, gods, and dragons. Uh, 
if, if God says there are dragons and there are dragons who represent the primordial chaos, which we talked about on our previous program, and the dragon who represents the ultimate end times enemy, or at least the leader of the, uh, the ultimate rebellion, <clears throat> Satan, why do we shy away from the use of that word in the Bible? I mean, how can we tell when the word translated from Hebrew into English is appropriately serpent or has been desupernaturalized and should have been dragon? Um, what role does I, I a dragon think, play, and what's the fascination with dragons in cultures from ancient Mesopotamia to uh, you know modern China? Yeah, I think that this is another good example. There's so many of these as we you know we've often discovered uh, examples of how you know biblical translation is done by human beings who are have biases and. I think not even it's not an anti-supernatural bias. It's a fear of looking mythological for the same reason why they translate Nephilim. They transliterate Nephilim instead of translating as giants. Right. And um, and this is another example. I think that we see that a lot of these scholastic or academic uh, translators they're concerned of of making it look too much like mythological literature. And of course, then they're missing the point of a lot of it, which is polemical, you know, and and intended to be symbolic. Uh, it, yeah, it's just it's it's too bad. It's too bad. but but that that should be a cautionary tale for all of us that you know we need to really be reading our English Bibles with caution, being aware that just what you read literally, because a lot of times, I just believe what the plain reading of the Bible says. Yeah, well, unfortunately, the translation is not always a good plain translation, so you've got to be careful. This is one of those examples. I was reading um, Isaiah 34 today, and um, I'm a bit behind in my Through the Bible in a year. So those of you who do that and get behind, you're not the only ones. (laughs) Even pastors. um, (laughs) It's exactly right. you know, I came across this passage that I, I wrote about in the giant book, um, and I'm reading through the ESV, and of all the translations, like, I, I really like the ESV in a lot of places. I think it does a great job, but in this, it's just ghastly. It's unbelievable. Like, they have all these lists of names of creatures, and the ESV 100% says that they're just normal creatures. So, like, jackals, mm-hmm. wild goats, ostriches. night birds, hyenas, <laughs> ostriches. Um, those kinds of things. And when you go and you read almost any other translation, you'll get at least something that's supernatural. If you go and read like the Septuagint, you get <laughs> monsters, devils, satyrs, Satyrs, howlings, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And uh, and that's actually one of the places, Derek, where um, dragon appears in the Hebrew, the word ton. Right. And so it's just crazy. Like the King James will translate it as dragon. Um Septuagint translates it as monsters or sirens, and then the ESV, ESV goes with jackals. And uh, it's just, in, in some ways, it's inexplicable, but I was having a conversation with some folks in church today, and we were talking about how um, how it is that we don't seem to realize that we as Christians can be just as influenced by the culture as anybody else. And, you know, you've got all these big movements of the 19th century, the um, enlightenment and rationalism and and evolutionary theory, materialism, all these things. 
It's like we pride ourselves because we're young earth creationists or whatever that we can't possibly be influenced by that. And yet here we are um, demythologizing what's like explicitly um, mythological language. You even have the Lilith shows up in that uh, passage and they refuse to translate her. She becomes the night bird. Mm-hmm, like that's mm-hmm. just unbelievable. And, and Brian's written some great uh, poetic sort of uh, imagery of Lilith in his books. And it's just like, it, it blows you away, but um, we're, we're susceptible to um, the demythologization of, of the scripture, just like anybody else. I'm pretty sure that that passage or one of those two passages um, that address that um there's also the the notion uh, I, it's the Lilith one. Which one is that? It's uh, uh, thirty four fourteen. Yeah. It, so I also read one scholar that talked about how th- that the 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 other creature could possibly be a snake at the bottom of the tree, which would be re- relevant to Lilith because of Ningus Shida was the famous serpent that followed uh, you know Lilith around, and so uh, yeah, there's some of those those clear references there. This is yeah, one of the reasons, oh, I was going to say, this is one of the reasons that Sharon and I, in our weekly Bible study, have taken to re- reading the Septuagint as we go through mm. to see what the Jewish religious scholars who translated that version uh, 200 years before Jesus was born thought about the Old Testament. And, and you're right, I'm looking at the Lexham English Septuagint, which is a modern rendering into English. And uh, I, I'd never heard this phrase before, demons will meet donkey centaurs. And one yeah, will cry right. out to another. Yeah. <laughs> Their donkey centaurs will rest. Donkey centaurs? Yeah. Wow. I mean, not regular horse centaurs, but donkey centaurs. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's funny because, um, like, pulling back and and looking at the big, or talking about the big picture first, um, you know, I, when we, we, you know, we, we were talking about this subject, you know, what are we going to talk about and stuff? And, I, you know, whenever I hear serpent, I always go, oh, because, you know, like, it's so cliche. You know, I mean... Obviously, every you know reptilian beings. You know, it, in fact, like talking about it is just so cliche in in, in our Western culture that um, it's a tired imagery, and we we forget that you know. And and I don't know if you guys read this book, but Charles Worth has written a book called The Good and Evil Serpent, and he chronicles sort of the ancient world concepts of that good and evil. And he's a humanist, and and so most of most of what he points out is that we have to remember that the ancient Near Eastern world, the serpent was almost exclusively a positive image and it represented knowledge and wisdom. And so when the Hebrew text comes out and and has almost almost exclusively negative image, except for a, a couple, right? Um, it was revolutionary, you know? And it was literally polemical on on, on so many of these counts. Obviously, the serpent in the garden, you know, is the first, you know, and most obvious example of that. And the, the, you know, the, the, not only the Gnostics, but way before, you know, the serpent was uh, considered the symbol of wisdom, even in ancient Egypt, right? Symbol of wisdom. And so the irony there is God saying, yeah, that serpent that you say is wisdom is actually the opposite, you know, bringing you, your human, uh, shall we say, the attempt of humanity to have autonomous knowledge apart from God, right? That that is itself is the fall itself, you know? So just sort of remembering that as we move forward, you know? It's interesting that you bring up Charles Worth. I had forgotten that he wrote that book. Um, My mind went to a guy that uh, I found 
about 10 years ago, he wrote about 200 years ago, a guy's name is John Bathurst Dean. And he was some sort of an Anglican uh, pastor and wrote a couple of works, one called The Worship of the Serpent Trace Throughout the World. And then he wrote a shorter piece on um, uh, Draconcia, which are basically dragon temples. And um, so he's a Christian. And so it's it's interesting, Brian, that you talk about Charlesworth as kind of a humanist with his view. You go and read Dean, you get a completely different take on the history of the serpent religion uh, throughout the world. And so, you know, those presuppositions that we have when we come to the study can make all the difference in the world. John Bathurst Dean, I want to write that down. Hmm. Yeah. I had uh, just read a paper by Charlesworth uh, not long ago that uh, looked at uh, Genesis 3 and then compared it to Psalm 68 in using it uh, to get more get some actual meaning out of Psalm 68 that most of our translations have have uh, skipped over. I mean, uh, we're familiar with the aspect of uh, the, the reference to the many peaked mountain mountain of Bashan. Why do you uh, look with uh, uh, hatred or jealousy or, or whatever the phrase was uh, over the mountain that God has chosen for his domain. Um, God desired for his abode where the Lord will dwell forever. But then it, it goes on from there. Um, but uh, I think Charlesworth's point was that uh, by not connecting Bashan and the the fact that Bashan or Bathan in the Ugaritic literally meant serpent and was a cognate, as uh, I think we mentioned during the program on on chaos with the Akkadian chaos monster, Bashmu, uh, the seven-headed chaos dragon that was defeated by Ninurta, um, you kind of miss the point. And uh, he was trying to reconstruct, I think, Psalm 68, verse uh, 22, where the Lord said, and this is the ESV now, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. Um, And the sea, of course, in Hebrew is Yam, which is another name that's sort of used interchangeably in the Ugaritic with Lotan, Leviathan, and uh, Tanin, or dragon. So uh, there there appears to be something more connected to uh, Psalm 68, or or communicated in Psalm 68, than we've gotten out of it. And it's mainly because we don't understand what Bashan is. Most of us are satisfied with the... uh, uh, you know, oh, the fat beasts of Bashan. Okay, Bashan was a great place to raise cattle. Then, okay, the famous yeah. cattle of Bashan. Yeah, um, right. And 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 really, cut it completely missing the point. And this is where Mike Heiser's work has been so, you know, eye opening. Uh, reversing Hermon. Oh, wait, Bashan was the entrance to the netherworld. Oh, it literally means place of the serpent. Yeah, but apparently, even more than that. Uh, you know, again, the connection between Bashan and Bashmu, the chaos dragon, and perhaps even this uh, verse in verse 22, there's a scholar by the name of um, Nicholas Wyatt, uh, professor emeritus at University of Edinburgh, who renders that verse uh, from Bashan, I shall bring back, I shall bring back from the depths, Yam. Um, God, in other words, prophesying a final defeat, perhaps, of this rebellious serpent, you know, not to drag us back into the chaos discussion, but uh, um, anyway, that that just triggered the memory because I'd, I'd seen the name Charlesworth recently as I was kind of digging through some stuff on Psalm 68. Um, but again, most Bible teachers, most pastors who are looking at those verses, when they see the name Bashan, instead of taking it as like, ah, this is a clue, I need to pay attention because there's something about that region, will just, uh, <laughs> you know, oh yeah, cattle. 
we need to do some version on this uh on this modern uh world of humanists that have kind of like we we go to dictionary of deities and demons in the bible and like there's not a lot of evangelicals that are writing for that but it's a fantastic dictionary because these guys aren't afraid to look at the these words and um define them the way that they are and we could you know we could kind of go well why is that and i have some ideas that maybe some of them they think that it's you know maybe they're kind of undermining the authority of scripture by doing it um so I th- I say it's time to take back the truth of the supernatural for Amen. You know the conservative side of this thing. I Amen. totally agree. Well, that's why we do what we're doing here. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Th- this is some fascinating stuff. Um, one of the things that we came across, and, and I'm going to throw this out there just because I think this is mind blowing, and and let me know if uh, you think this is uh, like way over the line. We had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to do, go to Albuquerque for the International Symposium on Archaeology and the Bible. And it's led by the uh, archaeological team at uh, Trinity Southwest University and Veritas International University, Dr. Stephen Collins, Dr. Gary Byers, and others. They've been digging at the site uh, in Jordan across from Jericho called Tal El Hammam since about 2005. And they've compiled... A, a wealth of scientific evidence that's convinced Sharon and me that this is the site of Sodom. They've caught a lot of flack for it because uh, the skeptics say they're just trying to prove the Bible. Other Christians say, well, it's in the wrong place. It's northeast of the Dead Sea. It should be southeast of the Dead Sea. Others say the carbon 14's in the wrong time because you're saying 1700 BC and everybody knows Abraham lived to 2000 BC. Instead of looking at this site that was eight to 10 times bigger than Jerusalem, was important enough for an enemy to march all the way from modern-day Iran to do to go to war against it, and was destroyed by a blast from the sky that um, leveled everything in the 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 Jordan Valley north of the Dead Sea. They estimate the wind speed that hit this this city sitting on a hill about eight miles northeast of the Dead Sea at about seven hundred miles an hour. I mean, that's like three times more powerful than the most powerful tornado ever recorded. Mm. Um, and uh, the two the two skulls that they found by the... Well, I, I don't know if that's been published. I can't talk about that. Uh, they did find <laughs> on the destruction layer at that city a uh, crystalline, white crystalline substance that was appearing every morning as they got to the site. It was leaching to the surface in the, the morning dew. And when they sent it off for chemical analysis, they found that it matched the uh, composition of the salts and sulfates in the Dead Sea water eight miles away. Exactly. Hmm. So now suddenly you've got a scientific explanation for Lot's wife. But as I was... uh, Sharon and I have been fascinated with with, with that aspect of the story of Sodom because of the high number of dolmens that were found at the base of the city and the fact that Moses and the Israelites got sucked into the worship of Baal Peor there, who appears to be a god of the underworld. And God was so angry about that that he sent a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites. So God destroys the city for some reason. I don't think it had anything to do with their alternate lifestyle. And then 400 years later, when Moses and the Israelites start worshiping this God there at that site, which is surrounded by these megalithic monuments for the dead. And according to Psalm 106, it's because they're eating sacrifices offered to the dead God sends a plague that kills 24,000 of them. And then Ryan Peterson, the other night, as I was talking to him, uh, mentions this as he was looking through Deuteronomy 32, which was the Song of Moses. 
that he sang before he died. And it was sung right in this region because they were at the plains of Moab just before he climbed Mount Nebo. And there are scholars going back now to um, Nelson Glick, who was one of the first archaeologists in the Holy Land uh, after World War I. Actually, this was during World War II, October of 1943. He wrote a paper where he suggested that this site, Tal El Hammam, was the location of Shittim, where Moses and the Israelites camped. So in other words, they may actually have been camping up on the hill on top of where this temple was located, where, according to the archaeologists digging at the site, the 1,500 dolmens around the base were all oriented towards that temple. And then Ryan points out in Deuteronomy 32, verse 31, God condemning Israel for their unfaithfulness, for their rock is not as our rock, that's capital R rock, talking about the, uh, the, the rebels, Our enemies are by themselves, for their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Now, again, Moses is singing this while they're on top of the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Whether he knew that, we don't know. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. And the word serpents there is tenanim, dragons. So... Hmm. God perhaps prophesying an end to uh, the rebellion and uh, saying that those who have aligned against him are drinking of the uh, the poison of dragons. Now, that, is, is that perhaps stretching it a little bit? Is maybe Moses uh, you, just uh, being picturesque in his language? As he's uh, relating, the, equating rebellion against God for the poison of to the poison of dragons. Well, so uh, having not heard this before, uh, but knowing the song uh, fairly well, you know this song is really supernaturally charged. So you have this is the song with the sons of God. The whole Deuteronomy thirty-two worldview comes right. early in it. Right. You've got uh, verse seventeen, him talking about these demons that weren't here before, and. And then the language that you brought up of the rock and the rocks. Mm-hmm. So the rocks are the gods. Um, and then you have the language of angels coming later. I think verse 43 um, that Mike's also done a study on with that, with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Rejoice and with him, O heavens, bow down to that. him, all gods. Yeah. Right, right. So the whole thing is from start to finish supernaturally charged. There's, there's just no doubt about that. So I would say that that would be at least something in favor from the context uh, to at least think about that idea. Sure. I mean, uh, in uh, Ezekiel 32, Ezekiel compares the, uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, the King of Egypt to a dragon in the Nile. Yeah. And in Ezekiel 39, uh, 29 as well. And we've talked about that relationship between the king and the gods before, so you know there's that aspect of it as well. Yeah, can I, um, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit too about the um, the serpent motif, you know, through Exodus. I mean, mm-hmm. and Numbers, but of course, I you know I just wrote my novel Moses Against the Gods of Egypt, so I did a lot of of research on Egypt and its you know its um, supernatural context and. There's just some fascinating stuff. And, you know, a lot of this stuff we already know, a lot of people know, but 
But when you find out a lot of the Egyptian background, it also sort of enlightens things, you know, like for example, you know, Moses's staff, right? We all know that story. It's, it's really um, fascinating such. And, but it's not just that it was like a staff of a shepherd, but that there's a very distinct connection, I think, going on there that um, the Pharaoh himself was actually depicted and sometimes actually did have uh, two things. He had a mace and a staff that he would hold, staff as the shepherd, but also, uh, and the mace as king, right, of his people. But the, so the staff has to do with, with a reference, I think, to Pharaoh and when you know Moses throws this down and and the it you know his his staff eats the snakes, um, it's interesting because in the text it doesn't say that his snake ate the snakes. The word is staff. His staff ate the snakes, and I think so. There's a deliberate not saying that it wasn't a snake, but I'm mm-hmm. saying there's a different literary thing going on there, saying that it's it's literally showing that you know Moses' authority swallows up Pharaoh's authority because that kingship is, you know, represented in that staff. And not only that, but there's the other elements of the, um, you know, the gods, multiple gods of Egypt were depicted as holding these, these snakes out, you know, um, which is also a Canaanite imagery as well. We know Asherah and stuff, but they, and they look like wavy staffs, you know, and that was a, a also a, like a, 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 an expression of of deity as well. And but it's interesting because um that what was I gonna say that Moses staff um I don't remember. But that that's another element where I think that there are, you know, when we get to the fiery serpents and we get to the bronze Nehushtan, you know, when they're complaining in Numbers 21, we want to go back to Egypt. So God gets angry and he sends these, you know, fiery serpents, right? And they're killing by, by tens of thousands of people, right? And the the Pharaoh, the, you know, the, the, the Uraeus was the cobra that would go on the Pharaoh's, you know, crown. Mm-hmm. And it was a symbol of Wajet, the, the cobra goddess who protected Pharaoh. So it's a very much of a, a, a connection between Pharaoh as well with that serpent. And so it's sort of like, oh yeah, you want to go back to Egypt? Well, here's your here's your god that you want to go back to, <laughs> and he's biting them, you know. So it's like it's just it's really cool to see how again there's the serpent imagery is highly polemical all throughout the story of Moses. Then when he does the bronze Nehushtan, you know, he puts the bronze snake on there, and and some even believe it had wings because there was that whole winged snake thing, and um. And it's interesting because there's a couple components there. The standard was also a common expression in Egypt as well as other places, but of the deity, it was supposed to be a repository of the power of the king. And not only that, but they believed in sympathetic magic, where if you would, if you were to create, uh, you know, something like a, 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 a like a scorpion, you know, it would protect you against scorpions, that kind of a thing. So God is like using you know, their their concepts and their image to actually bring about his own healing. You look to the serpent, you'll be healed. There's that sympathetic magic. Now, I'm not saying that God is sympathetic magic. I see this clearly as God's using their imagery and, he, and he's mocking it in a way, but he's also using it to sort of, he's using their own ignorance against them, I would say. In other words, they, you know, 
you have to realize they've come from 400 years of, of Egyptian slavery. They're, most of them are thinking like Egyptians, right? So God is like using their notions and understandings to punish them and then to heal them, to point to him, you know? And, oh, there was one other element too that I, I was getting to, um, the, uh, the, uh, the serpent thing as, um, ah, the deity, the, the, uh, oh, the, 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 the serpent, I was mentioning how the, the gods would somebody sometimes be depicted as holding these serpent staffs as well. That harkens back to Moses staff, you know, that again, not that Moses was a deity, but that God is using those understandings of deity and it's like he's saying Moses is my spokesman of deity to be superior to Pharaoh, your deity that you worship, you know? So that's that that polemical um, motif that I think uh, God uses a lot throughout throughout the Bible. You know, the serpent, um, just, just what does the serpent symbolize? And something that is kind of a basic question, but there's a, a lot of things that this creature has been used to symbolize. And you talked kind of about power and authority there. You know, the idea that the serpent, um, the snake, um, sheds its skin is a picture of rejuvenation and renewal. So it becomes this image of life from death. Um, you know, going to, to the way that Mike kind of thinks about um, Genesis 3.1 and using the verbal form of Nahash and, and as this... Uh, divination sort of things. So magic is super closely associated with them. And you just brought up the quality of magic there, Brian. Um, reminds me of Galatians 3.1, something that people don't often think about, but it says, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And the word bewitched there is beskino, from where we get basilisk. And so if you think about, um, uh. if you think about Harry Potter, you know, in the the one where the, the the snake looks at people, or you think about going older to Medusa and the power that it has to turn people into stone. I mean, magic has been associated with the creature for a long time. And of course, that's the other world, the other realm. So, and there's just, there's a lot of things that are going on with, with it that's, that makes it more than just that kind of simple idea that, you know, you said has become so cliche when we talk about the serpent. It's so much deeper than that. Yeah. In in Numbers 21 and um parallel verse in uh, Deuteronomy, you get the uh, the flying fiery serpent and uh the the words there are seraph nakash. Nakash is the serpent the word translated serpent in Genesis 3. Seraph um is believed to be the root behind seraphim and uh, perhaps from a verb that means to burn, hence flying the fiery burn. serpent. Yeah. yeah. So you know, it's, again, Sharon and I admitted that this was speculation in our book uh, suggested, hey, look, what else would you call a flying, fiery serpent? Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, other than a dragon. But uh, is it possible that this that the seraphim were serpentine in appearance? The only place we get any description of them is in Isaiah chapter 6, his throne room vision. And he uh, just mentions them as the six-winged creatures, which some scholars have... Um, identified as a fanciful version of the Uraeus because that the hooded cobra, the hood looks like it's divided into uh, three sections on each side. So six wings. Um, 
I, I think that's being somewhat condescending to the the Hebrews that they didn't know what they were looking at. Oh, look, flying fiery serpent. Oh, yeah, no. Right. No, wait. No, it's just a hooded cobra. Sorry. Our bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, is it possible that uh, the word dragon actually means, I mean, that some of these supernatural entities are dragons? And I add to that some of the research that's been done into uh, DMT, you know, ayahuasca, this so-called spirit molecule. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dr. Rick Strassman famously did that uh, study, and I forget if it was Arizona or Arizona State, but uh, where volunteers took it intravenously. But they've, there have been a number of papers that have been published within the last couple of years of people who were um, snorting it or whatever, and then reportedly seeing entities, a high percentage, a very high percentage of the volunteers were seeing entities, and many of them were reptilian. Now, is it because that's what we've been conditioned to see? If we're seeing aliens, they're going to be uh, greys and Nordics and reptilians. <laughs> or is it that they're actually seeing something that exists outside of our normal perception? Well, so you, know, you brought up how um, you brought up how the scripture really only gives the one description in Isaiah, but you know, there's a lot of pseudepigrapha that actually talk straight to this, and a lot of people don't know about them. So I'll read a couple of them. They're really interesting. Here's one that's called the Testament of Amram. It's fragment one from manuscript B, and it says, I saw watchers in my vision, the oh, dream vision. Two men were fighting over me, saying something, and then it's like it cuts off. And then it says, then it picks up and goes, holding a great contest over me. I asked them, who are you? that you are thus empowered over me. And they answered me, we have been empowered to rule over all mankind. They said to me, which of us do you choose to rule you? And I raised my eyes and I looked. One of them was terrifying in his appearance like a serpent, his cloak many colored, yet very dark. And I looked again in his appearance like the vestige of a viper. And then you've got in the book of Noah found at Qumran, it describes them as having bodies that are whiter than snow and redder than a rose. Every hair is white and curly and glorious. And then in the book of the secrets of Enoch, it says, they appeared to me two men very tall, such as I've never seen on the earth, and their faces shone like the sun, and their eyes were like burning lamps. So there's your uh, seraph idea. Fire came from their lips. Their dress had the appearance of feathers. Their feet were purple. Their wings were brighter than gold. Their hands were whiter than snow. And then the last one is from the Apocalypse of Abraham, where it's talking about, curiously, the devil is the chief of the fallen angels whose portion is the earth. And then it says he's depicted behind the tree of knowledge, standing something like a dragon in form, but having hands and feet like a man's on his back, six wings on the right and six on the left. So hmm. you've got a whole smattering of of Jewish speculation. I don't know. I don't know. Is it ayahuasca they're doing? I don't know. How do they know this? But they're talking about it and they're all using similar kinds of ideas for some group of creatures that are on the other side of this that are definitely exactly along the lines of what you're talking about, Derek. Uh, this is go this goes back to Mesopotamia though because the Mesopotamians had the idea that uh, the, the serpent there there was a, a number of entities like you mentioned Ningushita but uh, there are other serpentine entities um in the ancient world uh, even the the sacred animal of Marduk was a lion dragon um the the giants in the uh, in Greek 
cosmology, at least after the fourth century BC, were depicted as having uh, uh, like serpents for legs in the Gigantomachy. Uh, Titan or Typhon, rather, the Chaos Dragon was, you know, had like a hundred snakes for arms and stuff. So this was a motif that appeared uh, a lot in the ancient world, um, like the bison imagery for the for the gods in the ancient world too. That was a common theme. So uh, again, is it uh, just a story that was popular because it was really cool, or is, is somebody see something and and shared that story, or or was this just a motif because this is how these entities actually look? Well, that's, well, that's, by the way, I think I brought this up before, and that's one of the things that does, you know, just to be honest, that's my one troubling aspect is, I, you know, I said this earlier, that it's almost, ex- yeah. serpent imagery is exclusively uh, negative throughout the, the Bible, except for the seraphim. Mm-hmm. And, and like, so if they, if we do take it in context, like, like, you know, we're, we're implying here, whatever, thinking how, how how do you how do you wrestle with that? You know, I mean, because the good seraphim before God are serpentine of, of in some way. Maybe they're not serpents, but you know, there's some serpentine element to them. Um, and then how do we then understand that? Because I've got such a negative vibe whenever I read serpents, and then when I, I honestly when I read that in the Bible, it gives me a negative vibe. You know, and I'm wondering, you know, how to how do you guys understand that? I mean, I, I could come up with a look. The mind is very, very flexible in terms of justifying, and I can come up with a good explanation, and it's not false, but, you know, I can, you know, same thing along the lines of, well, the watchers weren't all bad, so some watchers mm-hmm. fell, and, but, but then why is all the other serpentine imagery throughout the text always negative, you know? I'm finding it hard to understand that. Not, it's not a contradiction in my mind, it's just a, it's, a, it's certainly a difficulty that I don't, I don't quite know how to address it, you know. The, the depiction of the serpents and uh, dragons was not necessarily negative in ancient Mesopotamia, it, but you're right in, in biblical to the Hebrews anyway. Uh, it, it seems to have a pretty negative connotation, and human nature being what it is, I think most of us uh, are at least a little uneasy around snakes. You know, they don't have give off the same sort of vibe as like a you know a bunny. Um, could could it be could it simply be you know like the best analogy i i find could be you know aslan you know that whole famous same statement you know is he safe oh no he's not safe but he's good you know so there's that mutual that there's a dangerous side and, and and that's what that image is and um and so there's that kind of duality but since the world itself takes on to worship that Ophidian concept or imagery, mm-hmm. then maybe, maybe, you know, it's like, you know, what I'm saying like, it's, it's, it's maybe the, the, the text is, yeah, it's this worship is an idolatry and, 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 and we'll use that imagery negatively against the worship, but that doesn't mean that there can't be some kind of reptilian form of these heavenly creatures who worship God. I don't know. That's well. And again, as Mike well, is, if, uh, Go ahead, Derek. Well, I was just going to say, Mike pointed out in his analysis of um, uh, Nakash that the word just beyond meaning just serpent also has, as Doug said, the, the connotation of uh, uh, divination, but also of yep. uh, gleaming like polished brass. So you've got this idea that seems consistent with the seraph Nakash, a radiant, glowing, almost fiery being. 
yeah. who again may well, may have uh, may have serpentine appearance. So, yeah, I like what you said, Brian, like instead of just going to kind of the simple thing of, well, okay, some of the serifs are serpentine and they're good and that's why, but it doesn't really, that doesn't really answer the question of why is it so negative? So what if the idea is something along the lines of this is, and I I think about the Ouroboros with the Milky Way. So the Milky Way, the, the idea that this is the great serpent eating its tail. And where is that? That's out there. That's in that realm up there. And then you think about all the serpent uh, imagery associated with the underworld. And where's that? Well, that's down there. Neither one of those are here. And so whenever you think about this, you know, the, what's going on with serpent worship, it's worshiping something in the underworld or something in the hosts of heaven. And um, add to that then the idea of magic and um, sorcery and that kind of otherworldly wisdom. And it seems to me that maybe what you have going on is some kind of a, a well, a crossing over and something that it's good in its own realm, but you're not staying in your lane. And so because they didn't stay in their lane and we didn't stay in our lane, the serpentine imagery becomes a negative thing because it's bleeding over into this space where it doesn't belong. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why we have DVD on this show. <laughs> that yeah, because of the brilliance of explanation. Really, I, I mean, I, I thank you. That's a, that yeah, that's a very helpful way to put it. I, I think that's right on. Let let me throw this out, and this may be you know just an illustration of the dangers of trying to do a Bible study with Strong's Concordance. Um, the <laughs> uh, the Greek word translated dragon is drakon, but it derives apparently from the Greek derkomai, which means to see or the seeing one to see that's right i mean are we going too far here to say yeah the greeks understood that uh, the dragons were dare i say watchers yeah or or even uh, going back again to the idea of prophecy sibyls um uh, the oracles um, and all the serpentine yeah. imagery. Well, yeah, the Pythia, right, things. right. Um, they're seeing things because they're coming from the other world, you know? Yeah, yeah. The the the, the oracle of, of Pythia, you know, the, the python that Apollo had to slay. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Somebody give Van Dorn a, a, a PhD on that, will you? Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, that is good stuff. I mean, you know, obviously this is necess- this is speculative because none of this is explicit in Scripture, but there are verses, and Doug, you know, Isaiah 34 is a classic example of where our modern translations have kind of smoothed out those weird rough edges that uh, might lead people to, to drift towards believing that Greek mythology was real or something. Um, but the truth is there is overlap between what the Greeks and Romans and Canaanites and Babylonians and Akkadians believed and what the Hebrews believed. It's just the Hebrews had a different perspective on those gods. And so did the early church. When you read the early church fathers, it's clear that they knew that Zeus and Apollo existed, but they're fallen angels. And the giants looking up this uh, Gnostic heresy of Ophis, I think is what it was called. Something along those lines, Tertullian and Irenaeus and those guys all write about it. Hippolytus we don't know much about it, but it's really interesting that they sort of like, well, it's typical Gnosticism where they, they, they kind of bleed the truth in with the lie and they end up um, almost seeing the serpent and Christ as the very same thing. And like, it just becomes this weird, crazy, perverted, but yet 
close enough sort of a thing that they're able to capture all these, you know, Christians and bring them into the dark side. I got to say this because I was, uh, you know, this is a soapbox of mine, the, the Isaiah 34 and 13 thing. It drives me nuts because in this case, I'm going to say this very strongly. The ESV has no business translating the way that it does. And the reason why is because we have an inspired commentary from John in Revelation on that text. And this is what it says. Yeah. Uh, Revelation 18, 2. He called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become what? A dwelling place of demons. A haunt for every unclean spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird. A haunt for every unclean detestable beast. It's not that it's wrong to translate all of them. You know, it's like you, you don't have to translate all of them bad uh, as supernatural because they're not all that way. There are definitely unclean animals and birds in it. But John is telling you that there are unclean demons, and he's literally using these texts to get you there. If we only knew how to read Revelation in light of the Old Testament, we might get that sort of a thing. Excellent point. Excellent point. I am highlighting that for when we get that far in our Unraveling Revelation series. Yep. <laughs> yeah. 153 episodes in, we're only up to Revelation 15. So, <laughs> <laughs> But we started with Genesis 1, because you can't get to the end of the book and understand it if you don't start with the uh, the beginning. And you're right, it's right. pretty clear John was knew what Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah had written because it's uh it's clear that's yeah, that's really good. Stealing that. This is uh fascinating stuff. We just look forward to the day when we understand it fully, which probably will be, you know, in the new earth when uh, I'm hoping and I know Sharon is too that we get jobs in the archives. So that we can just <laughs> spend eternity just There's reading the scrolls. Of, yeah, a lot of ancient scrolls that I want to be able to read. Yeah, yeah. the yeah. library of Gondor, where Gandalf goes. Yeah, Alexandria. <laughs> well, by the way, though, still talking about that that uh, Isaiah 13 and, and Revelation. By the way, that's that, you know, the context of that passage is judgment on Babylon and these are animals of the of the wilderness, of the of the desert. And we talked about how the mm-hmm. desert was the place of chaos where Azazel was as well, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and these are the, you know, it's almost like if you read it, it's like he's saying, you know, Babylon, I'm thinking of Isaiah 13, Babylon, you are a demonic force and the demons are going to dance on your grave, you know, because that word for wild goats, which, you know, is Seder, right? Well, you know, there are other passages in Leviticus where it's it's translated better as like goat demons. In other words, from the eyes of the Hebrew to them, yeah, your satyrs that you worship, they're goat demons, you know? Mm-hmm. And and it's kind of like saying, yeah, these demons that you worship and that is everything that you are, they're going to dance on your grave, which is kind of like the way we say um, – you know, like in today's political environment and such, you know, where, you know, if you give into the mob, if you if you tr- try to appease the mob and and uh, you just think you just think that the alligator is going to eat everyone else, but you're going to be the last one that it eats, you know, and and that's kind of the same concept there, you know. So I find that. And, and so so point being that then Revelation is where it comes out more clearly. You know, these are, you know, the demons are dancing on Babylon. That gets back to something that uh, Sharon and I've been doing some reading on here of late, uh, and this gets back to Bashan and and the significance of Jesus 
choosing not just to reveal his divinity at Caesarea Philippi, but actually beginning his ministry there at Bethany across the Jordan, at uh, Bashan across the Jordan. Isaiah 40, verse 3, is translated, it's quoted differently in the New Testament than it's written in Isaiah. Isaiah writes, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The voice isn't out in the wilderness crying out. The voice is saying, make straight the road through the wilderness. And when you combine that with Isaiah 9 and the prophecy that Matthew says Jesus fulfilled when he moved to Capernaum, um, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them, a light has shown, or deep darkness of the la- dwelt in the land of the shadow of death. Matthew said that uh, that was fulfilled when Jesus moved to Capernaum. But again, when he called his disciples from the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, Bethsaida, which was in that region across from the Jordan, surrounded by dolmens. And then from there, Satan took him into the wilderness and then took him up a very high mountain to show him all of the kingdoms of the earth. All of this, it seems to be a battleground, but... Is it possible then this wilderness related to Babylon is also connected to uh, ancient Bashan and where Jesus began and declared his ministry and declared his divinity? It's interesting. I think about, uh, as I've been going through Isaiah, he talks about over and over this road. There's going to be a road from Egypt to Assyria, that kind of a thing. And so I'm pretty sure that that road's not going along the coast. Um. It it seems to me like the the idea is exactly what you just said. Like it's going to go in these places that this path is going to be made straight, and that would be right through the wilderness. So mm-hmm. yeah. Well, which some, is something just struck me that well that Via Maris that uh, you know Gentile Gentile of the nations with the way of the sea, which Isaiah writes about. But where did Paul have the scales fall from his eye. Where, I mean, where did he have his Damascus yeah. Road experience? It's on the road to Damascus, yeah. Which went right from through Bashan. Israel. Yeah, he has to have been somewhere in that area, doesn't he? Hmm. That's wow. wild. <laughs> huh. I'm going to have to look up those verses and see if we can pinpoint where that uh, took place. But that's, that, that's where the road would have gone. The road that ran, um, connected to the Via Maris, ran right past... Caesarea Philippi and Dan, and then went uh, through Damascus or, uh, onto, uh, you know, Mesopotamia. Hmm. Well, uh, as you can see, you've been following this uh, freewheeling conversation. This is um, what we do, digging into the Word, and uh, every time we do, there's there's stuff that pops out that uh, makes us go, why? That, I, I'm pretty sure that wasn't in there the last time. Um, <laughs> Boom! Yeah. Before you finish it, I'll give you a this just a, maybe to put in the background of the Charlesworth thing. So the way that uh, Dean ends his book after all this discussion of serpent worship all over the world, and he's been talking about these things called Draconia, which are uh, serpentine-shaped temples. So they would be any kind of anything from a circular stone uh, that then has winding stones around it that are all over the world to you know some features that are like that. And he goes. The existence of Draconia proves the ancient prevalence of serpentine worship, and the prevalence of such an idolatry proves the truth of Holy Scripture. And he says, this universal concurrence of traditions proves a common source of derivation. 
And the oldest record of the legend must be that upon which they're all founded. The most ancient record of the history of the serpent tempter is the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis, therefore, is the fact from which almost every superstition connected with the mythological serpent is derived. Um, I don't know that modern scholars would appreciate that, but as a Christian uh, guy who's doing this kind of work 200 years ago, that was kind of his his starting point, and that was his finishing point, too. It's interesting when you look at the work of the uh, the archaeologists who went into the field in centuries gone by, literally with a Bible in one hand and uh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, you know a spade in the other. And uh, to, to an extent, some of the most successful archaeologists today are doing the same thing. But um, yeah, we've had a lot of fun reading through Palestine Exploration Fund reports from the uh, the mid to late 19th <laughs> century. Um, you might be the only person that's ever said that in history of the world there, Derek. But. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there's, a, there's an, a, a dig going on in Jordan um, along the Zarka River, which uh, is uh, south of the Sea of Galilee. It's the, the river along which Jordan wrestled with uh, the angel of God. Uh, and uh, apparently there's a temple that they've, they've dubbed the Temple of the Serpents in that location uh, that dates back to the, uh, the the end of the Chalcolithic period, so around 4000 BC. So again, and I've, I've got some other papers that I've saved as we're planning on writing something at some point when we have time about uh, Bashan and its importance. In fact, it may go into our book that we're working on now. Um, all through the Jordan Valley, you've got prehistoric um, artifacts that suggest that uh, the serpent was was an object of veneration for a long, long time before the Israelites were even, you know, before long before God called Abraham from uh, uh, from southern Turkey. Uh, th- this this was a thing in the Holy Land. So, uh, and when you go back to ancient Eridu and the, the city of Ur, uh, going back to what was that period of history? Um, Oh, forgetting the name. It's a pre-Uruk period. But anyway, the uh, those Ophidian yeah. figurines, those things that look like little uh, lizard people. But they're bipeds mm-hmm. and they're doing mammalian things like mothers suckling a young. I mean, that's uh, not something snakes normally do, but uh, they're called Ophidian because they are snake-like. And they're found in and around the ancient temple of Eridu, which was the temple of the god Enki, who was the lord of the Abzu, the abyss. So... Again, all we can do is speculate because they didn't leave us any notes as to why they made all these little things and why they looked so so creepy. Um, you know, Giorgio uh, Tsoukalos has the answer, of course. They're a- aliens. <laughs> He's I, I got think, it on a lapel pin right here. I yeah, think. not saying That's it's aliens, but... On. Yeah, it's it aliens. Is. What season is it? 15, 16? <laughs> yeah. 15, Countless. yeah. They have to just be doing the same things over and over and over. What yeah. else can they be doing? Well, just making up more stuff. Yeah, well, yeah. one of the uh, critics, uh, a secular critic, who I, I cited in, in the book um, about the UFO phenomenon, um, Jason Colavito, who's um, not a believer as far as I can tell. He probably wouldn't no. be happy that no. I, I cited his research quite heavily in a uh, in a Christian book because I thought he connected the uh, ancient aliens thing to the writing of H.P. Lovecraft very well. Um, anyway, uh, he very very wise. I think he put it very well that uh, uh, ancient aliens long ago stopped being about the UFO phenomenon and essentially just has been shilling for theosophy for the last eight or ten seasons. Oh. And uh, mm. he's right. He's right. 
because really that's what Ancient Aliens is all about. It's just shilling for theosophy. But uh, even there, you get the uh, the reptilians. So, uh, <laughs> fellas, uh, thank you for taking time out of your schedules to do it. Brian, we'll be keeping you in prayer. We'll keep praying for Judd. But, uh, boy, when uh, when uh, my son Hunter hits, it's going to be interesting. I was looking at some of the comments and some of the uh, – just on the trailer in the, sec- in the yeah, liberal yeah. media, the oh, Daily Beast be and Newsweek. And I just want everyone to know that I will never – commit suicide i you guys need to know that <laughs> yeah and I'm, i say it jokingly but it's yeah. actually true i, I never no, would I but no. uh it's just you know no. the, the world that we live in you know we're dealing with dark dark stuff yeah who knows we're dealing the, F- the serpentine stuff is what we're dealing yeah. with. yeah and the so. fbi raids uh every yeah. political enemy with the biden so who knows what's going to happen we'll see yeah, well let's see what happened with marjorie taylor green uh, yeah. a couple no. nights ago uh-uh. yeah well, so in the middle of the night, the cops show up, but they don't have any lights on oh, or anything. Oh, right, 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 right. She was swatted. Yes, was I did swatted. see that. Yeah. yeah. And that can be dangerous because if they, uh, they think that you're coming out and they say that uh, he had a gun and... Uh, right. Yeah, that, that could be uh, a tragic... Yeah. yeah, you're right. These are dark times and uh, the principalities and powers behind the scenes, they have no love for, for any of us, even the dupes that are serving their purposes. Yeah. So... Well, fellas, thanks very much for your time. We look forward to doing this again next month. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, movies, television shows, and their representation of the spirit realm. That should be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. yeah. Our homework is to watch movies, so how, can, how bad can that be? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fellas, God bless you. We'll talk to you next month. Check our show notes at vftb.net or wherever you're consuming this podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, that's great. Please click the button, subscribe, and share with your friends. Our YouTube channel is youtube.com slash Gilbert House. But the best way to get this program and all of the video content that comes from the Gilbert House, literally, we've got four rooms now dedicated to recording video and or audio, is the Gilbert House mobile app. It is absolutely free, available for iOS, Android, Amazon, Kindle, Fire, phones, and tablets, and um, it is produced, maintained by a Christian company, which means they will not censor us. So if we happen to say something on Sci Friday, for example, that um, the medical gatekeepers don't like, uh, which has happened in the past, a couple of those shows have been yanked, even though it turned out that, um, hmm, we were right, uh, you will still see it on the mobile app. And it also powers our Roku and Apple TV channels. You can find information about all of that at the website, vftb.net or gilberthouse.org. Just check the top menu bar. We All the websites look pretty much the same, using the same template for all of those to make it easy for Sharon and me because we record and produce all of the video content, maintain our own websites, run the store. And yeah, I, I'm the one who takes the stuff from the store uh, to the post office every morning. So... Um, We appreciate uh, things like that that make our lives easier. But uh, anyway, check the notes for uh, Doug, Brian, and Judd's uh, web links. And uh, keep an eye out for My Son Hunter coming uh, in in just over a week. This ought to be uh, interesting to see how the mainstream media deals with that. Well, we've got a couple of uh, conferences to tell you about. Actually, one to tell you about as uh, it is coming up in just a month. It's uh, almost incorrect to call it a conference more accurately advanced supernatural warfare training that's the uh, official title of the weekend 
We'll be gathering together in Sharon's old stomping grounds, really just downriver from where she grew up in uh, Madison, Indiana. This is uh, just across the river from Louisville in Jeffersonville, Indiana, October 14th through 16th. This will be at David Hevener's church. He purchased an old church building, and he's using it to produce his video content there. And uh, he will be one of the speakers, along with Ellie Marzulli, Tom Dunn of Through the Black Ministries, a gentleman who learned at the side of Russ Dizdar for many years. And this weekend is really in honor of, in memory of, Russ and Shelley Dizdar. Uh, Vicki Joy Anderson, author of the new book, They Only Come Out at Night, about sleep paralysis, Sonda Allison, Tracy Tennant, and Sharon and me. You can find out more at hearthewatchmen.com. But uh, if you're in southern Indiana, northern Kentucky, uh, southwest Ohio, Cincinnati area, it's really not that far, uh, even uh, southeast Illinois, say around uh, Carmi, Harrisburg, uh, just hop on 64, shoot across uh, to uh, uh, the the Louisville area, and, uh, and you're there. Uh, again, all the information online at... Uh, uh, hearthewatchmen.com. We uh, communicated a bit with uh, Lipkin Tours uh, recently, and uh, we are uh, starting to see some some good numbers signing up. We've got uh, more than one full busload already for our tour of Israel, March 19th through 30th of 2023. You can get information there at uh, at our website, gilberthouse.org slash travel. Uh, which includes a couple of uh, links to the uh, videos that we produced, our travelogue umentaries following the tours in uh, 2018 and 2019. So uh, you can rent them. We've got a new streaming uh, video site, a video on demand site where you can uh, rent those for seven days, watch in full HD as we take you through the Holy Land. Uh, The 2018 tour also goes over to Sardinia and shows you the tombs of the giants there. And uh, you can rent those for little as three bucks for seven days. So to give you an idea what a a tour of Israel is like when you go with the Gilberts. Again, more information online at gilberthouse.org slash travel. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to listen or watch wherever you are consuming this podcast. Uh, Please remember the audio only version of the podcast is just about everywhere that podcasts are distributed. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, wherever fine podcasts are sold. Our announcer is DC Good. And a view from the bunkers of production of Gilbert House and released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. We do this because we wrestle not against flesh and blood. I'm Derek Gilbert, and this is A View from the Bunker. Bunker.